I'm going to talk to you about uh, comics and writing for comics, which is obviously basically visual storytelling, but I, I, if there's time I will broaden it out slightly to include um, writing for uh, science fiction and fantasy, which is the other thing I do all the time when I'm writing comics, I'm writing novels which uh, appear to be sort of ruleless and lawless because they are the product of complete imagination, but in fact there is a, uh, a structure there that often has to be uh, very closely closely watched. But I think the best place to start is to... Uh, I work on the assumption that people don't know much about the way a comic is actually constructed. I've got some examples of stuff to show you, to show you how, how, how the physical thing works. Um, I, I started uh, in the comics industry straight out of Teddy Hall in 87 as an editorial trainee, and I got the job simply because I, when I was a kid I used to like drawing pictures and telling stories. And when I was first introduced to Marvel Comics and 2000 AD stuff, uh, I realised there was an opportunity to do both of those things at the same time, um, which I, that's how I filled many of my childhood years, drawing my own comics and writing my own comics. Uh, and I, I sort of stopped the, uh, drawing them when I couldn't draw them fast enough to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. Uh, and when I was here, I, I edited the, the Al Arian and drew cartoons for it, and somebody said to me the fateful words, you should get a job in comics. And I went, can you do that? Because it didn't occur to me that it was actually something that people actually did properly. Very naive. So I wrote to Marvel in uh, London, Marvel UK, who at the, that point were um, very much a, uh, a franchise house. They reprinted the American superhero comics, but they also published, originated uh, franchise and licensed products. And I wrote to them asking them if there was a job and didn't realise that they were actually advertising jobs at the time and thought I was applying. So I, got, got that I was invited in for an interview and discovered that I wasn't the only one. Anyway, uh, I, I, was, I was Egon Spengler on the real Ghostbusters for about two years as a result of that. I wrote, I wrote the column there and I learnt uh, how to put comics together at the very tail end of that being a physical task as opposed to a, a task that was done on desktops. It was the, the Marvel was right in the, the last of the traditional eras of, uh, of stuff. So some, some of the artwork, I'll show you some artwork in a second. Um, these days everything is done on computers, almost everything is done on computers, but it, but it, 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 is, it, it is lovely to see the physical evidence of, of the way pages come together and how, how the different layers fit together. And because I worked for a company then that was dealing with Ghostbusters and Care Bears and um, Thomas the Tank Engine and Thundercats and everything like that, they were all very prescribed licenses, which is an extraordinarily good learning process for what I've done later on, because everything came with the style guide, you had to work to an IP to structure what you did, um, and you couldn't break the toys, you had to put the toys back in the box when you finished writing them. And we were encouraged on staff to write stories for various um, comics in order to better understand how story dynamics work so we could then better edit the freelance writers that we were going to employ. So the, the, the aforementioned mentioned titles, Care Bears, My Finest Hour, uh, Thundercats, that Transformers, these kind of things were the things I wrote on a daily basis. And I remember after about six months I was asked, invited to write the Doctor Who comic strip and to me that felt like I graduated to something really... Very exciting indeed. Um, uh, and, and it was from there that I went freelance and started writing comics full-time because I realised that the writing of them was what I was much more interested in than the, uh, uh, than the editing of them. Um, when you uh, compose a comic, uh, there are two basic ways of doing it. But basically, the, the writer, it starts with the writer. Although it's a very visual medium, it starts with the writer. It's the writer's responsibility to, to, to craft the story, which he often needs to present to the editors um, and the publishers in terms of, uh, for approvals to make sure you're doing the right thing. Um, so there'll, there'll be a pitch document which is a basic outline of a story. Uh, but in terms of transferring my story idea to an artist and working with an artist, I will write a script. He says, let's grab all these. Uh, a script, a comic book script in its, uh, in its simplest form looks very much like a screenplay. Uh, in fact, I use, when I write these days, I use a program called Final Draft, which is a screenplay um, 
uh, software. Um, the only difference between that and a, a, a comic strip and a screenplay is, of course, that the uh, that it is it is not one fluid scene run through, but that I actually literally break the script down into the panel by panel components of a comic book page. So, and I'll hand this around in a second. But but uh, so so a script will start page one and then panel one and then a description of what's in that panel. I will tell the artist what I want to see. I may even tell him what shape that panel wants to be, where I where the the, the camera angle is going to come from, that kind of stuff. And then beneath that there will be whatever copy, whatever dialogue goes in that panel. And then it will be panel two, and so on. You work way through there. And, and that goes to the artist, and the artist essentially tr translates that into a visual form, and the dialogue that I've written in my script then gets applied to the artwork in terms of lettering. Um, sounds easy, but of course it's open to all sorts of wonderful interpretations because you're working as a part of a team. In America, particularly in the heyday of Marvel comics, there was, a, there was a, a method which is still used to this day called the Marvel method, which is very much like that, but it was done for, done for speed. It's when Stanley was, was uh, writing everything, and he hadn't got time to script everything up front, so he would, uh, he would basically, instead of doing that full scripted thing, he would, he would write it as a, a sort of a plot. He'd say, pages one through three, the following things happen. And then he'd give that to an artist, and it would be the artist's responsibility to work out where the panel divisions were going to be, and then once it was drawn, once Jack Kirby had drawn it, or Steve Dicko had drawn it, it would go back to Stanley, and he would then write the script. He would write what went in the balloons. So uh, those are the two basic ways of doing it, and there, there, is, uh, there is some say that the, the, the Marvel method encourages the interpretation of the, the, the artist, it being a visual medium, and that's a good thing, and some would say that's a bad thing because it, you, the, the writer then loses control of his story. Um, but I'll, 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 hand, I'll hand this out. That's, uh, I'll hand one on one side. That's just a, that's a full script of, of something I've written for, for, for um, DC Vertigo. And at the back of the, the first few pages of script, there are the pages of artwork, which shows you how it was translated in. Similarly here, there's some, some Marvel stuff. There's the script. That's how it turned out in the, uh, in the final analysis. Um, when you're working on a script, you often don't know the artist that you're going to be working with. And in fact, you may, the first thing you ever know about it is, is when you see the finished product. But if you're lucky enough to work on something regularly or you're a part of a created team, uh, you can tailor your script very much to suit the needs and specific talents of the artist. So if he's really good at figure work or he's really good at fight choreography or something like that, then you put more of that in. Or if he likes long panel descriptions where all the detail is there, you'll give him that. If he's, if he's the sort of person who will ignore most instruction, then there's no point putting it in and you'll leave it up to him to, to do things. Um, uh, the important things though, and these are the things that I learned right at the beginning when I was working at Marvel UK and I was working on these very, very simple junior licensed products like, uh, uh, I say, Thundercats and Ghostbusters and that kind of thing. Is there, are, there are sort of basic, very simple basic rules uh, for comics that, that, that you don't have to stick to all the time, but if you can remember them, they help. It helps to know a rule before you break it, I think, is the simplest way of putting it. So, those rules are very simple things like try not to put more than five or six panels on a page. And by panels, I mean the individual. Yes, we've all got that, haven't we? Uh, try not to put more than three speech balloons in any one panel. Try not to put more than about nine or ten words in any one speech balloon. If at all possible, always show people full figure. If you can't answer the question, are they on a skateboard, you've drawn it wrong. 
that kind of very, very simple. Now, they are overly simplistic, because in a junior comic like, like Ghostbusters, where it was really about brand recognition, those things really mattered. They need, you needed to see the product, and you needed clarity because it was for a younger age group. But once you've learned those basic rules, even if you're writing something much more sophisticated for an older readership, the, 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 um, the Dead Wardians there is, 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 a, is, a, is a Vertigo comic, aimed at adults rather than, uh, than, than kids. But if you've got those basic principles of uh, storytelling at work in what you're doing, um, They'll, they will see you right anyway, even when you decide to do a 20-panel page for some bizarre reason or whatever, or you'll put 18 speech balloons in something. You know you're breaking the, the rules for a particular reason, and you, you'll know that, for instance, multiplying the number of panels you have on a page beyond five or six will make things seem much more intense and fast-paced. Um, a great density of dialogue in one balloon will, in one panel will make things seem particularly pressurised. Or There are all sorts of techniques where you're actually using the visual effect of the density of the page to, to enhance the atmosphere of the comic, or the story you're telling. I'll talk a bit about that again in a minute. Uh, let me show you some actual artwork from the, the days when artwork was artwork rather than on computers. You'll notice the first thing is that it's quite large. That's, that's the size. So you usually scaled up one and a half or even two beyond what it has to be when it's uh, published. Bearing in mind American comic books, um, British, British comics, newsstand things, Magazine size, we're all familiar with the Beano and the Dandy, that's a standard comic size in the UK. They're published, usually published weekly, and they're usually anthologies. So 2000 AD, the classic British comic, is an anthology. It's five or six stories in five-page weekly instalments. In America, the comic book is a much smaller beast, uh, and it's usually 20 or 22-page story once a month. Uh, so Spider-Man and Superman is published in that format. So very, very different ways. The American, uh, one of the reasons that a lot of the 2000 AD comic strips aren't well known in America is because the format is alien to an American audience. And when we publish the American stuff in this country, and this has gone on since the 70s, we break down their monthly comics into five-page instalments in a weekly comic. So there is a very, very different taste. Obviously, if you know anything about the comics in France, the Bande Dessinée, they publish graphic novel albums, hardback, usually 60 pages long. They treat it in a completely different way. Uh, manga in, in Japan, yet again, another comic form which, uh, which, is, which is vast and is, uh, uh, you, um, has, uh, they're often the thickness of a paperback book because their storytelling techniques are different. It's cultural differences in different places. But the basic comic book art in Britain and America and France and anywhere else is, is, is usually this size. Um, this is a page of... Mistech Wars. This is a page of Mistech Wars from the early 90s. This is Wolverine. Hello, and it's drawn by Brian Hitch. And you can see that although most of the lettering was attached uh, after the artwork was drawn, some of the sound effects were done on overlay over the top. Sometimes lettering would actually be done on penciled artwork. This is <laughs> Count Duckula. Um, <laughs> uh, let, me, let, me, let me pass these around so you can actually see what... See what comic book pages are like. Uh, the lettering here, lettering nowadays... Now, we'll talk a, bit, a little bit about lettering because it's so, so important. Lettering in a comic... And by that, I mean the person who puts the words down. That's not the artist and it's not me. It's my words, but I didn't write them there, obviously. Um, uh, having bad lettering, badly placed or in unclear lettering on a comic strip is like having a bad soundtrack on a movie. It just completely destroys your ability to interact with it. Uh, it, it disrupts the flow. It reminds you you're reading a comic and you've got to struggle. The same would apply to uh, a poor reading order in terms of the panels. You, what you want a reader to do is to start reading and forget they're reading a comic. Basically, is what they want to do. Um, and lettering, lettering is the great unsung um, uh, art form within within comics. Here's here's in fact some more Duckula, but it's in colour and it's got the lettering on an overlay. These were all hand. The lettering was all hand done. Nowadays, there can be. In fact, my boss, when I was at uh, Marvel UK and, and was Egon Spengler, as I said earlier, uh, Richard Starkings now runs Comic Craft. He he was a he was an editor, but he turned into professional lettering, and he was the first man to take. Uh, lettering into computer fonts and, and, and basically revolutionised the industry there. 
This is a page of 2000 AD. This is Sinister Dexter. Full colour painted artwork, you can see. And again, lettering attached on an overlay there. As I said, the thing that you want to remember with comics is you want the reader to forget they're reading a comic. Somebody once said to me that um, reading a book is a very active process because you're, you're going into the text and to extract its meaning. So you're actively attacking it. Uh, watching a movie is essentially a passive thing because you sit there and let the movie come to you because it's visual. A comic, as no surprises, has pictures and words. So it's, doing, it's asking both those things of you. It's both a passive and active process simultaneously. So you could say, I can't believe I'm saying it here, but you could say it is the most sophisticated storytelling process in the world because it combines things that other things don't combine. Um, in order to capture that, you've got to pay attention to really simple things that, 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 like I said, you don't want to distract the reader. Some great comic book artists are famed because they're amazing dynamic page layouts. But they're often famous for their dynamic page layouts rather than for being good comic book artists. Because those dynamic layouts where you've got feet and arms sticking out of panels and you're not quite sure which panel to read next are not conducive to the reading experience because they will, they will, they will make you stop, literally stop and go, what do I read next? Where is this story going? I think we forget, particularly in this day and age of, um, of, of, of dropping comic sales because comics are being edged out by video games, um, that people need to learn how to read comics in order to understand how to really enjoy them. You need to become comic literate in order to love the panel-by-panel -panel storytelling process and get, become immersive, immersed in it to enjoy it. Um, so so the, to me, the great comic book artists are the ones who actually do the least. They keep very simple panel-by-panel -panel schemes. There is never any doubt what's coming next. There's never any doubt what balloon you're reading next. There's never any doubt um, uh, which person is talking or how do you identify somebody. So there's all sorts of basic techniques that were very, very old school, very sort of 50s and 60s, that, are, that, are, that people don't do enough today, which is, you know, uh, begin a comic, even if even it's going to be collected together in a trade paperback form, begin a comic with a beginning, end on a cliffhanger, have a, have a nice arc through the course of the comic, whether it's five pages or 20 pages, um, always make sure you introduce characters. You always assume that this comic is someone's first comic and they've never read Superman before. Let, tell them who these people are. Explain what's going on. Um, uh, and also, um, try, not, I say, try not to trip them up with anything like poor lettering or badly placed lettering and that kind of stuff. Um, and use reading order. And this is the thing where the words and the pictures and the, the actual movement of the human eyes is extraordinarily important. Um, uh, unlike film, Unlike a movie, and this is why it's a different visual medium, you read a comic book page like a page of a book. You read it from left to right. Even though it's a picture or multiple pictures on a page, you read it from left to right. And that's the most useful tool in the writer and artist's arsenal in terms of communicating that story to, um, uh, to, to the reader. Um, because because you, you, it, that leads them. The, the left to right process leads them through the story. It tells them which balloon to read next. It tells them which panel to read next. It tells them where things are happening. Um, so once you've, once you've overcome doing simple mistakes, like a single frame of a comic, for instance, can only show one thing. If you've written a panel description that says uh, he, he parks the car and gets out, panel two, that's, that is not a panel of a comic. That's two panels of a comic. He parks the car, and he gets out. That's two different, completely different. You can't show them simultaneously. So that's a, and, and, and you can do that. Um, you can do that so, so so easily. I've seen so many people write scripts where they've they've made a sort of very basic. They got so excited with the story. They've tried to put too many things into one panel. Um, uh, but the reading order 
is what pulls you through. And, and, and it does things to certain panel dynamics. So for instance, things that are moving from left to right, that is to say, with reading order in a comic, perceived, your brain perceives it as happening faster than something that's moving from right to left because it's moving against reading order. So if I wanted to show, uh, I don't know, the flash accelerating to attack speed, I would make sure that I told the artist to show him going from, from frame left to frame right because reading order and the progress of the eye will make that scene faster. If I wanted to say, and we want to see him skidding to a halt, desperately trying to stop himself, I would get him to do it the other way around because it would go against reading order. And this came home to me particularly recently. Uh, I'm writing a, uh, a graphic novel, a, an actual graphic novel, that is to say a 100-page story for, for Games Workshop. It's a um, huge space opera, shooty death kill in space is the technical term for it. <laughs> and uh, this graphic novel, it's a very rare an opportunity because, because usually even though there are, you go into Waterstones or whatever and you can buy what look like graphic novels and are called graphic novels because they are paperback books full of, full of comic book material, they're often collections of things that have been published serially in, in smaller, smaller units. It's very rare to get the opportunity to actually write something that has a hundred page structure to it because the pacing and the structure in it is inevitably going to be completely different to the way it would be if you were doing it in 20 page increments or 5 page increments. So it's a wonderful opportunity and I, I've, this is a company I've published many things for. I've published um, novels, I write science fiction novels for them and actually this graphic novel it att attaches itself to a previous prose novel that I wrote as it's sort of a spin-off. Uh, and they told me they wanted this thing and it's basically it's a it's sort of the hunt for Red October in space. It's two gigantic spaceships chasing each other around and duelling in space. And I went, That's, that'll be terrific, fantastic, and I've got a very good artist. And then I sat down to write it and I thought, actually, potentially this is going to be hideous because, because even allowing for the non-scientific real-world conventions of science fiction, how am I going to begin to show the sheer scale of two sort of ten-mile-long spaceships chasing each other through, through what is essentially darkness without any, anything to orientate the reader as to where they are, where they are in relation to each other, any landmarks to show direction or change of speed or any of these things. How am I going to do that? Even though I'm cutting inside to see the crews talking and the exciting things that are happening inside, the actual space combat, although the guy can draw, in fact, he, he's a painter, he's the uh, cover illustrator of the novel series, so they're amazing science fiction uh, book jacket uh, images that, uh, that he's doing in a, in a comic book form. I know he can do good spaceships, but how am I going to do a good, a good story with him? How am I going to play that out? And I eventually realised that reading order was going to be the secret. Um, the, the, so the story begins, I'm going to keep it very simple, but the story begins with, with these two spaceships. One is chasing the other one, so they're moving fast. So I said, right, when we first see the ships, we don't even need to see them in the same panel, but I want you to always show them moving from lower panel left to upper frame right. So they're always moving, from your point of view, everybody, that way. So there's a sense of speed. They're going with reading order. It's very exciting. And, but they're also going up. There's a slight sense of up, so into space. That's not, that's, I mean, it's really as simple as that. But the, I just wanted that suggestion. And nobody needed to know they were moving away from a planet. And although we don't see them in the same frame, same panel, Every time we see them, I said, don't do the, 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 the artist, the thing an artist usually does, if he's, if he's drawn a car or a spaceship once, and you ask him to draw it again, he will do it from a different angle, because he'll assume you'll want variation. I said, I don't, I don't want variation. Every time we see these, I want them orientated the same way, so that the reader knows intuitively that they're still moving in the same directions that they were before in relation to each other. And he went, okay then, and we set off like that, and, and, and the effect is so much more cinematic in this pattern. As the comic went on, he was sending me pages, and I realised that it was beginning to work. And there came a point in the story, sort of five or six pages in, where I said that the enemy spaceship in, that's being chased turns and comes back to face its, uh, its attacker. And again, they're so far apart, they can't possibly be in the same panel, 
but we'll see him turning. So every time we see this spaceship now, I want him going against reading order and coming from top to bottom so that, again, we know where they are in relation to each other. And he said, OK, I think that'll work. And we did a few more pages of that, and they, they, they rush together, and they're shooting at each other. And finally, there is, there is a double-page spread, which is on a page turn, double-page spread, where they go across each other, sort of broadsiding each other. And I thought that would be quite effective. And when I saw the pages, I couldn't believe how amazingly effective it is, because, because, because you have been carried on with it. There have been no, there's no landscape, there's no, there's no, like I said, there's no signposts, but reading order alone had conveyed momentum, direction, interrelation of the two things involved and then brought it up to this incredible beat moment where the, t the page turn and the size of the panel um, paid off brilliantly. It was, it was an impactful moment. I don't think you could do it in a, a, a movie, to be honest, because, because the movie would have, would have shown you too much. And, and I was, I was, it was, it was, it was a, comparatively late on in my career, actually, a wonderful lesson in the power of the reading order in comics to make the sequences sort of really, really come to life and to do things that otherwise I would have been completely helpless and unable to, unable to portray. Uh, long story. <laughs> shall I finish there, or we want one more question? Or shall I? I, sh I think I should hand over to yeah. to the next next phase of this. Um, when, uh, when Lucy mentioned that that, uh, that Stuart and I were here at the same time, and uh, we I had forgotten until I saw him at the Writers' Day that uh, that we used to talk animatedly about comics, and he was kind enough to say that my enthusiasm for comics, the, the Hulk I think in particular, had informed some of his comic reading tastes subsequently, so I thought that was rather nice of him to say so. The other thing is that, of course, I, I struggled to hold the John Oldham Society uh, together when we, we, in my third year here, I think, I think it ran to, uh, the best we could manage was to get, go down into the, I don't know if it's still the rehearsal rooms next to the laundry, is that, does that still exist? And muck about on a Sunday morning. I think it was about it. And Stuart would come along to that and, and, we, and, and it was sort of a vague excuse to do improv but not really in any clever sense at all. Um, uh, but I think it led Stuart in places, many. I mean, not taking responsibility there, obviously. <laughs> but I, just, I hasten to add, what I'm saying is that that was, that was the thing. But I think it's weird, there's a weird thought that in one of the other planets in the multiverse, as the Marvel would have it, there, there, is, there is a reality in which... Uh, it's very like this reality, very, very much like this reality. It's just that Stuart is the comic book writer <laughs> and I'm the stand-up comedian. So very, very much like this reality, only nothing like as funny. <laughs> Stuart. Mm -hmm.